Hebrews 10, starting in verse 1. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Let's pray together. Lord, show us Christ. Get yourself glory. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. At the beginning of every sermon I preach, as I'm about to read a portion of the Bible, you'll hear me say these words, no doubt. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Word of God. No doubt you've heard the words of men. You've heard the voice of the media, the opinion of friends and family. No doubt you have your own thoughts and your own opinions. But whenever we turn to the Bible, we must recognize, thus says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. This is something different. This is something unique. Not merely another opinion to be added to the mixed. What we're about to read comes with the highest authority because these are the words of God. The Bible alone is the word of God. I would like to ask you today, are you a whole Bible Christian? There's a publication, no doubt you've seen uh, these at various times, of the New Testament, Psalms and Proverbs perhaps. And I've got nothing against it, but it's like walking around in battle with a dagger rather than a sword. The whole sword is the whole Bible. Some in our day, Andy Stanley being the guilty one, wants us to unhitch from the Old Testament. In the New Testament, you know, that's the message, uh, so-called, and we are to stick only with the words of Jesus. Everything else is just so controversial. Let's just stick with the big, the main things. Let's just stick with Jesus. Now, there are a number of major problems with that view, not the least of which is to understand the message of Jesus is that Jesus is the theme of the Old Testament. Jesus preached Jesus from the Old Testament. 
To unbelieving Jews who had spent a lifetime with their heads in the scriptures, Jesus said in John 5.39, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You're reading the scripture, it's all about me. You don't even believe the scripture because the scripture reveals me. And the scripture he was referring to at that time was what we would call the Hebrew Bible. To two of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, Jesus said these familiar words, Luke chapter 24, verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's the message of Jesus. And that's New Testament. The New Testament message is, you don't understand Jesus unless you've understood the New Testament, because the, New, uh, the Old Testament, because the Old Testament was all about Jesus. And that's Jesus' view. I'd rather have Jesus' view than someone else's. I'm not even interested in my opinion. If my opinion is different from Jesus, I have to change. He won't. The Hebrew Bible is our book. I want to say this. The Old Testament is our book. It's Christian scripture. The entire Bible is a Christian book. Don't fall under the weight of the culture in Christianity out there that says it's the New Testament that's ours. Uh, the other is the kind of Hebrew scriptures. No, it's our scriptures. All scripture is God-breathed, inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3, 16. The patriarchs are ours. Abraham belongs to us. Isaac belongs to us. Jacob belongs to us. David belongs to us. The Hebrew stories are all part of our history. The early church preached Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. The New Testament was not yet written, but they had more than enough to preach Christ, going to what we would call the Old Covenant. We as Christians are children of Abraham. Galatians 3.29. Now, as we look at our passage before us in Hebrews chapter 10, we are engaging with revelation from God, and we need to listen to it, to hear it. This chapter contains a lot of things. One passage of solemn warning, we'll get to that later on. Two passages of practical application. One passage of comparison. And three lettuce passages. That's a lot in one chapter. In verses 1 through 18, we have a comparison. It's actually the sixth uh, comparison that we've seen so far in this amazing book. And the comparison is between the Levitical sacrifices and the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, we've already seen this, but like a good preacher, he's repeating something so that we get it. In verses 1 through 4, we have revelation concerning five weaknesses of the Levitical system. Let's read verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Let me stop there. The law presented only a shadow. The sacrifices of the old covenant presented only a shadow rather than the substance. Now imagine a man who's been on a business trip for maybe two or three weeks and he comes home and waiting at the door 
is his wife at his home. With the light behind her, there's a shadow. But rather than kissing his wife, he kisses the shadow. That entire scenario is absurd, and rightfully so. And that's the point that's been made here. The Old Testament is a shadow. Don't be so in love with the shadow that when the substance comes, you reject the substance because everything of the shadow is pointing forward to something better, the real, the substance, the actual reality of the Messiah. Now he's come. Don't live in the shadows. The light of the world has come. That's the point. Hebrew Christians were under great persecution or were about to face even more. And they were tempted to go back to the Levitical system. And the point of the writer here is that if you do that, you're being satisfied with only the shadow rather than the substance. He's here. He's come. He's the perfect mediator. He's the perfect sacrifice. He's the perfect savior. Don't go back to that which only pointed to him. The shadow was a rough outline. It pointed forward to something or rather someone better. They did not point to themselves. Those animal sacrifices were not pointing to themselves, but away from themselves. These animal sacrifices to one who would bring perfection. They were saying, I'm not it. There's one to come. This is not the fulfillment of everything. Perfection still awaits. That's what these sacrifices testified towards. So we continue reading in verse 1, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The message is this, these old covenant sacrifices had to be offered endlessly, indicating that they could never make the offerers perfect. That's an emphasis that we find throughout here in Hebrews. Otherwise, you wouldn't need to offer them again. There would no there would be no need for them to be offered if perfection had already come. That word perfect, as you look at, the, look at it there in verse 1, make perfect those who draw near, speaks to the fact that it brings things to an end, brings them to completion. And that was never the case under the old covenant system. Verse 2, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. The message is this. The Old Testament animal sacrifice and sacrifices couldn't do the job. All they did was provide an annual, a yearly recollection and reminder of sins. That's all they did. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. That's the point. They could never take away sins. Now, we've already seen in Hebrews 9 that Christ's sacrifice put sin to bed, put it away. But the Old Testament sacrifice did not put away sin. They reminded people of sin. This is why they always had to be repeated. One year led to another year, to another year, and another sacrifice. Why is this? Verse 4 explains. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They couldn't do it. All they brought was a temporal covering. 
And every one of these sacrifices pointed to a perfection yet to come. That wasn't the end. It was only pointing towards the end. Now we see verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, this is amazing, and I've been stunned as I've dwelt on the consequences of the consequently. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, now, what is in view here is a quotation from Psalm 40. And what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he applies that quotation to Jesus. Consequently, when he came into the world, he, who's the he? Christ said. What did he say? Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, who's the I? Christ Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So, the writer of Hebrews, quoting the passage that was read earlier in our service, Psalm 40, says, that was Jesus' talk. That was what Jesus said. Do you grasp that? He's quoting Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, and applies it, to Jesus and saying this is messianic words in view. Now I want to say this, not only did Jesus uphold the Old Testament scriptures in what he taught, he did so also by his life. The best way, the most emphatic way that you and I can acknowledge the authority of God's word is not to merely talk of it but to live it, to come under it, to obey it. For Jesus, obeying the will of God for his life meant betrayal and it meant the cross. Now, what is interesting to me is that the quotation that we find in Hebrews is a quotation from what we call the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And there it cites uh, these words, A body thou hast prepared for me, that's the original words in Hebrew for the words in the Septuagint, my ears thou hast opened or dug. And there's a slight difference between the Hebrew Scriptures and the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures at this point. And the recognition is, the, of the, uh, is, is this. For, for Jesus and for the early disciples in the first century, the Bible they used, the Old Testament Scriptures, was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. We could talk at length about that. I could, uh, I was going to say bore you for hours, but I, I don't think it would be boring, but it would be interesting, but we need to move on or else we'll be here till Tuesday. And I know some people will like that, but we need to move on. But the point of the passage is this. For Jesus, the motivation was always this, to do the Father's will. The will of God prophetically revealed in Scripture. Not something happening between his ears, but what was written. And he found himself in the Bible and understood that what he was reading was about him. Jesus said this in John 4, 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I wonder if you can keep your place in Hebrews 10, but go back in your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. Matthew, chapter 26. The Gospel of Matthew. 
written primarily to Jews who understood the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Look with me in verse 24. This is Matthew 26, looking at verse 24. And Jesus said this, The Son of Man goes, look at this next phrase, as it is written of him. What I'm doing has been written about centuries before. And I'm only doing that which is written. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. It's speaking there of Judas Iscariot, of course. But here on task is Jesus saying, I'm about the Father's will, as he's uh, made clear elsewhere. And now he's saying, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Uh, go down to verse uh, 53 in our Matthew 26 here. 53, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? That was a question. It was a rhetorical question because the answer was obvious. Yeah, he can do that. At any time, he can get 12 legions of angels to intervene. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So, Jesus made it clear he was about the Father's business even as a 12-year-old, and later on, he's about that work. He was, he was to finish, which means he has to complete the allotted task the Father had given to him. He had to go because it was written of him. He had to go because it was written of him. Now, as something further I'd love for us to see. Not only is the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, about Christ, but you know this, Christ speaks in the Old Testament. Look again in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, well, what did he say? He said some verses found in Psalm 40. Notice that. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, now, who penned those words in Psalm 40? The answer is David. And David was speaking, writing on behalf of Christ. Christ, not only was that the case, but Christ spoke through David. David penned the words, but it was the Messiah about his task speaking. It's beautiful to see. Let's go to the New Testament, see this in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. It's important for us to see these words before us, so they're fresh in our minds. Verse 10, 1 Peter 1 verse 10. Con concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, search and inquired carefully 
inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them, the Spirit of the Messiah in them, in who? In the prophets, was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, who's the them? The prophets, that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, there's a lot in that, but what I just want to bring out is the Spirit of the Messiah was in the prophets and in the writing of the Old Covenant so that things that were written were written not just about the person who was penning the words, but about the Messiah. So that when the Messiah came, everyone could recognize, wow, we're looking at something that was prophesied in the Psalms, in other places, a thousand years before time. See, God is the only one who can write about history before it happens. You realize this? There are prophecies about the first coming of Christ that were written thousands of years before he came, and they're written as history. He bore our infirmities and carried our diseases. And by his stripes we are healed. When was that written? 700 years before Christ by Isaiah. It's history written beforehand. God is so all-knowing, he doesn't not... He doesn't only know the future, he declares the future from the beginning, the Bible says. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's never been shocked. I'm so glad I've been shocked. I've been shocked by me. I thought, Lord, I I didn't know that was in me. uh, God never says, yeah, I'm shocked too. He took us on knowing what was in us and has still said, those who are justified, he glorified. He's taking us all the way as a grace project, and he's never been shocked. I've been shocked. He's never been shocked. And he not only has told us about the first coming, he's told us about the second coming, so we can sing of the second coming, and he hasn't yet come the second time. And so we're rejoicing about the second coming, and he hasn't come. But we know he will come, just as he fulfilled the promises in the first coming. He will come again. He will come again. I will come again, he said. So we can rejoice. He's coming again. Well, not everybody believes that. This is not about a poll. This is not about popularity. This is not, this will happen if we get together and believe strongly enough. He's coming whether you believe it or not. He's coming again. Go back to Psalm 22. See another evidence of what I'm talking about. Psalm 22. Familiar words to us, Jesus on the cross uttered the first words of this psalm, written a thousand years B.C., around that time, by by David. And it's as if, in the history of Israel, this was one of the very memorable psalms. Everybody in in Hebrew society would know these psalms. The book of Psalms was the songbook of the Hebrews. Think about that. So when he's on the cross and cries out the first words of Psalm 22, he's basically making this declaration. Everything in Psalm 22 I'm fulfilling. Words were at a premium. 
when you are crucified, it's hard to talk. You don't talk in long sentences. And so by declaring the first words of Psalm 22, it's like someone like you and I saying, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. We can finish it because we don't need to say it all because we're so familiar with the words. That's what was happening in Israel when Jesus was on the cross, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Everyone realized that's Psalm 22. If they were Hebrews, they did. Romans may not have understood. But the Hebrews did. And what is he saying? I'm fulfilling the entire psalm. I don't have to because words are at a premium. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's all he could get out. That's all he needed to get out. I'm fulfilling every word in this psalm. Have you got more? Yeah, look at verse 16. Psalm 22, verse 16. For dogs have encompassed me. Speaking of Gentiles. A company of... That's... Speaking of the Romans. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. What? Do you realize that never happened to David, but David is penning these words because the spirit of the Messiah is in him. They have pierced my hands and feet. Well, that was written a thousand years BC. How can he put this in the, te in the past tense? They have, not they will. They have. Never happened to David. There's no record that David was ever crucified. And get this, crucifixion wasn't even invented when Jesus said, when, excuse me, when David penned those words. You check it out in history, it'll stand up to scrutiny. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. Never happened to David. Did happen to the Messiah. And for my clothing they cast lots. There it is. You've got an amazing book in your hands if you've got a Bible. Amen. You see, those words were not true of David, but as 1 Peter 1.11 declares, the spirit of the Messiah in them was indicating. And that's what we see in Psalm 40, where we read, we go back to Hebrews, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Though God had commanded, God himself had commanded these sacrifices, this... Scripture says he's not desired them. Why? Because their heart wasn't in them. Uh, they were doing it by rote. I say, all right, you got this sin. I've got to be out here in 15 minutes. All right, okay, Clyde, get the, get the slaughter instrument. Okay, go, yeah, okay, go through it, yeah, okay, do it, yeah, okay. And it was all over very, very quickly. And although it was what God commanded, God took no pleasure in it. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Hmm. Let's go back to, I need to find Hebrews. I got excited and I'm still in the Psalms. So, the good news is there's a lot in Psalms. We don't need palm reading, we need psalm reading. <laughs> Sacrifices and offerings. You have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Hmm. What are we reading? We read these words. When he comes into the world, he says. I wonder what words you said when you came into the world. 
You realize this? Babies don't talk when they come into the world. You have to wait a little while. There are time markers, aren't they? Uh, and you look at the calendar and you say, well, they're this, this many months old, they should be saying something by now. If they're 16 years of age, they should have said something by now. 16 months, what should be seen? Three months, nine months, whatever. But when they come into the world, no one's expecting someone to be born and then say, well, thank the Lord, that's over. You would not expect that. But when Christ came into the world, he said, what we've got in view is the divinity of Christ and him as God speaking. It's a, it's a mind-blowing thing that we're reading. Oh yeah, when he comes into the world, he said, do you realize that could only be true of the divinity of Christ? What we have in the person of Jesus Christ is one person with two natures. He's truly God and truly man. As man, as a baby born, he couldn't speak. Couldn't speak words, but as God he can. And when he came into the world, he said, sacrifices, offerings, you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. This is fathomless, ladies and gentlemen. This is God the Son who had no birth speaking. When did he say this? At his incarnation. He's speaking about the body prepared for him. How do we know that? Look at verse 5 again. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, not 30 years later, but when he came into the world, he was able to say, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. You see, God the Son had no beginning, and that's why when you and I read our Christmas cards, if you still receive those physical things in the mail, you get a Christmas card, and often you might see Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 on it, which says this, I know you know it, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Note how specific that is. The child was born. The son wasn't born. The eternal son never had a birth. He always was with his father. So unto us a child is born speaks of the humanity of Christ. Unto us a son is given is the divinity of Christ. And now we can read familiar words. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Notice it's the words of giving. Unto us a son is given. The son wasn't born. The son of God became and took on flesh, but the Son of God had no beginning. He always was with the Father. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, even back then. And the Word was God. Your Bible is so coherent. The specificity of the words are so wonderful that you can spend a lifetime studying words of, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. But if you, if you actually see what's there, wow. It would be wrong to say the, the child is given, the son is born, but it's, it's right, it fits. The child is born, the son is given. A human body was prepared for Jesus by the Father. I would be more specific. The human body was prepared for God the Son. 
by the Father. So that the second person of the Trinity took on flesh. The Word became flesh. And Christ, the Messiah, prophesied this through David centuries before, a thousand or so years before. Here's the point. God cannot die. You ever heard of the God is dead movement? It's dead. God isn't. God cannot die. If he were to die, the whole universe would evaporate because the universe is found only in existence because it's in God. He's the creator and sustainer of it all. He upholds all things by the word of his power. If God goes, everything goes. Not just the carpet and the uh, electrical fans. Everything goes. All the universe goes. Oh, where's God in this universe? No, the best question to ask is, where's the universe in God? He's bigger than all of it. He spoke everything out into existence by his word. He is not the universe. He created the universe. There is a creator and creation distinction. May the universe bless you. What does that mean? It's heresy, first of all. I hope the good feelings of the universe comes your way. I'll be thinking positive thoughts of energy towards you. Good luck with that. And by the way, there isn't such a thing as luck. Happy Providence, amen? God cannot die. Oh, but Jesus died, and he's God, so he can't be God if he died. No, 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 no. Theologians make distinctions, and uh, there's a difference between, uh, and a distinction between your head and your body, right? We can distinguish between your head and your body, but if we were to separate your head from your body, I wouldn't be good. You'd die. So theologians understand that we don't separate the Godhood of Jesus from the humanity of Jesus, but we can make distinctions. On the cross, God didn't die. The man, Jesus, died. He endured death, which was the penalty for sin. But God himself didn't die. That's just good theology. Amen. So, death being the penalty for sin, God the Son took on human nature and along with it a human body. Help me, Lord, to convey this. He was given a body capable of death. Make sense? Because as God, he was incapable of death. There are certain things God can't do. God can do anything. No, well, we need to look at that. He can't lie, would be against his nature, and he cannot die. Those are two things. It's impossible for God to lie, right? And it's impossible for God to die. But Jesus died. Yes. Hmm. He was given a body that was capable of death, that had a heartbeat, that had blood, that had the need of oxygen. He was given a body capable of death. Let me quote the great father of the church, Athanasius. Uh, we had his creed uh, recited earlier in the service. 
He didn't write the creed, but it was uh, a creed based on the teachings of Athanasius, which is why it's called the Athanasian Creed. Here's a quote. People want to quote people in the last 15 years. Go back and you'll get some real thunderous quotes. As the Word who is immortal and the Father's Son, it was not possible for him to die. And this is the reason why he assumed a body capable of dying. When he offered his own temple and bodily instrument as a substitute for the life of all, he fulfilled in death all that was required. All I can say is, oh, the wonder of it all. Look at verse 6, Hebrews 10. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, who's that? The Messiah. Behold, I have come to do your will. You've given me a body, and I'm here to do your will. You've given me a body, you've prepared it for me, now I'm here to do your will. As it is written of me in the scroll of the book. All right, I'm reading the book, what are you telling me to do? Now as God, he always knew, but as a man, he had to learn. And he found himself in the scriptures. And he's reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And when he's faced with temptations, he quotes the book of Deuteronomy and says, it is written, it is written, it is written. He found himself in the book. He understood how to deal with temptation by reading and quoting the book. He didn't just come against the devil with his own power. He came against the devil with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, Ephesians 6. A body was prepared and a willing heart was there in Jesus to do God's will. I want to ask you, is that true of you? Do you want to do the will of God? The Bible says, take up your cross and follow me. What is your cross? One man said it this way, your cross is where your will and God's will cross. That's profound. What's the cross you're asking me to carry? It's when your will and God's will cross. I'd like this. I'd like a home here. I'd like this. I'd like that. And God says, but I want this. Your will is only tested when your will and his will cross. It's like unity. We've got great unity till there's a disagreement. Then we find out how much unity we have. I'm a loyal person. Yeah, when you agree with everything, but what happens when you don't agree? I love this church family. What happens when you're offended? Don't look at me in that tone of voice. <laughs> if you can't say amen, say ouch. Amen. Amen. Look at verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the Lord. Then he added, who's the he? It's the Messiah still speaking. Behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Hmm. He's speaking about the old covenant, the Levitical system. That's the first. And he establishes the second, which in this context is the new covenant, brought in by Christ. He has 
done away with the first in order to establish the second. What a message to the Hebrews. Don't go back. God's done with that. Don't go back to the Levitical system. Don't be impressed with the priests, what they wear. Don't be, don't be impressed, even though they're the big, big people in town. They seem to have all of the authority in the town amongst the Jews. Don't be impressed. What Jesus has done and who he is is better, far better, so much better. God testified to the Levitical priests something amazing. I know you know it. It's found in the Gospel of Matthew. He won't turn there. But do you remember when Jesus died? What do we read? The veil of the temple was torn in two, rent in two, from top to bottom. It's not man with a ladder got up to the top. It's God doing it. I'm sure the insurance claim went like this. Act of God. I'm sure that curtain was insured. These were Jews. <laughs> I mean in a good way. Yeah. And uh, there's no disparaging word that Jews know about finances, right? <laughs> and so... I can imagine them filling out the form. What are you going to say, Bill? What are you going to say, Bob? Uh, did you do it? No, I didn't do it. Uh, only God could do this. That curtain between the Holy of Holies and the whole holy place was so thick. Scholars say it was about four inches thick. No man could shred it. No man could tear it up. But it was torn in two from top to bottom. And what a testimony to the Levitical priests Everything you're doing is defunct. It's obsolete. It is no longer relevant. What my son has done outside your temple is nothing you do now counts. So Hebrew Christians, don't go back. Don't go back. He's abolished the first and established the second. And Levitical priests, what you're doing is now obsolete. It's over. Once you know how to text, you don't want to go back to smoke signals. <laughs> Look at verse 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The message of Christianity is not, well, get on with it. Let the Holy Spirit empower you to do a bunch of stuff. The message is not get on with it. The message is, hear this, it's finished. It's over. The war's over. God and man are reconciled by the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus on the cross paid for the sins of God's people all through human history, past, present, and future. The message is not do a little more. He's done it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. He did it all. And you are holy. No, no, no. I've got, I'm working on that past. No, no, no. Get the big picture. By the sacrifice of Jesus, you, Christian, have been made holy. Set apart to God. His own possession. You're a chosen people. A royal priesthood 
A people belonging to God. That's what it means. The holiness you need to enter heaven was acquired by Jesus in his sacrifice. Plus nothing. The sacrifice of Jesus was necessary and ladies and gentlemen, it was sufficient. Amen. He did all that was necessary, all that was sufficient and we are holy because Jesus won God's pleasure for all those who trust in him. Have you repented? Have you believed and understood this wonderful gospel? God, the second person of the Trinity, took on a body, lived a sinless life, died an atoning death on the cross, rose again from the dead, and now is at the place of all authority in the universe. So that anyone who repents turns from their sin, says, I don't want him anymore. I choose Christ. I want Christ. I believe in Christ. He's everything to me. I come to him. He's my Lord from this moment on. God says, you're in. And forever, I will treat you as set apart to me. Oh, yes, now after we've come to Christ, there's a measure of improvement needed, but none of that gets you what Jesus got you at the cross. Your standing with God is based on Jesus plus nothing. And verse 10 tells it. It tells it with such stunning power. By that will, we, who's the we? Everybody in the world? No. The people of God. We have been, not will be. We have been. We, the people of God, by the sacrifice of Jesus, have been set apart to God. On the cross, Jesus said, it's finished. I've done it for all my people. He'll save his people from their sins. Did he do it? Yes, he did. He's done it. We have been sanctified. Not that we will. There's a measure of sanctification yet future. We're not going to be sinning in heaven. Praise God. You're going to be living next to St. Bertha and enjoy it. <laughs> Dwell above with those we love, oh, won't that be glory. To dwell below with those we know, that's another story. But in heaven, you won't be perturbed because Bertha's next, in the next man mansion to you. She'll be fully sanctified. And so will you. The message is not, do a little more. It's already done. The religions of this world, man-made religion says, do, do, do. Christianity says, done, done, done. What a message. Jesus plus nothing. Justification by faith alone, R.C. Sproul said, is really shorthand for justification by Christ alone. Our faith doesn't save, it's the Savior who saves through faith. And notice that last phrase. Once for all. How many times do we read this in Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10? It's a recurring theme. Once for all. No need of another sacrifice. In contrast to the Levitical system, which had to have this yearly Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, every year. No. Jesus one time went with one offering, which was him, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. He'd done it all. What's the application? Tell me something to do. Yeah, stand in awe of the grace of God. Stand in awe of the cross of Christ. The death, the resurrection of Christ. And then live for the will of God. Not to try and get you what Jesus got you. But in gratitude. 
Old timers used to speak of three things. Guilt, which is what we have under the law. None of us are made righteous by what we do. We're only condemned by what we've done. Grace, that's what we find in the gospel. God comes to us and says, receive my son and I'll give you all that I would give him. Mercy says, I'm not going to punish, punish you. That's wonderful. Grace goes even further. You're not only not getting punished, you're getting everything the son would get. We're heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Grace, then gratitude. Three words, guilt, we recognize our sin. Grace, that's what we find in the gospel. And then in gratitude, we live for Christ. We look at our wallets and we say, I'm going to do what God says with my giving. We look at our time. We say, I'm going to put God's priorities on my calendar. Our time, our talents, our treasure. That doesn't give us right standing with God. Jesus did. But in gratitude, we're now going to live for him. Because we're going to do what Jesus did. Live for the will of God. And the will of God is to recognize how awesome is our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the once for all, perfect, finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Both today and three weeks from now and 300 years from now and three million years from now. May all around your throne, may we be one of those. When the saints go marching in, I want to be in that number. Around the throne, hands held high, saying and singing, Worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. By his blood, he has redeemed us to God. And he's made us a kingdom of priests. Father, we thank you for this, in Jesus' name, amen.